Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Okay, uh, Footsteps of the Messiah, page 10, I believe. Footsteps of the Messiah, page 10. We have went through the uh, stages of the different Gentile governments that God talked about would be in play throughout time, and we, sh- we found out a little bit more about the Fourth Empire, which started out as the Roman Empire. It's going to move into a one-world government. It's going to move into a ten-division stage, and then it's going to move into an Antichrist stage, and then finally the Messianic Kingdom will destroy it. Okay, so we want to... We want to drill down a little bit more on this fourth kingdom that's getting ready to happen, which is the one world government. And so we want to, we want to go through its history to get a good identification of it, what it means. We talked about imperialism last week. So now I want you to go on the middle of page 10 to number two, the United States, which is Rome. Okay? So that fourth empire can be called imperialism. That's the bigger idea. So what, what's the first phase or stage? It was the Roman Empire. Okay? So letter A, the first stage was the United States, which was the Roman Empire. Um, basically, I have the, the dates on there. This went from 63 BC to uh, AD 6, uh, uh, 364. Okay? That was what stage John talks about in the book of Revelation that he's in. I'll get to that in just a second. But that's where he says that's where we're at when he talks about that in the book of Revelation. Okay. The next phase that that this imperialism goes into is called the two-division stage. As you remember in Daniel's vision of the metallic man, the metallic man starts off with his, his torso as one, which is Rome, and then the metallic man's legs go into two. So now, what is predicted then, that, that this phase of imperialism goes into two legs or two areas in the world that it splits up. So I want to study that for just a second. The two-division stage, letter A. It is a stage that began in, in AD 364 when Emperor uh, Valentinian divided the Roman Empire into east and west division. So we can put a date on that of when the two-leg division started. 364. So now what you have is a balance of power in the west and a balance of power in the east. So if we move to what happened in um, the western side, the western side gets concentrated in Italy, in Rome. And that's where the headquarters starts becoming, right there, and centered in, is in Rome. And then the eastern leg gets centered in Constantinople. So that's where the two head capitals of this, uh, what do you want to call it, imperialism, Romanism, whatever you want to call it, starts getting centered. Okay. If you look in letter D, the eastern division of power remained in Constantinople until 1453. And guess why it collapsed? Muslims. Does that surprise you, anybody? We've been dealing with Muslims for 1,500 years. 
They caused the collapse of Constantinople. They have now taken over Constantinople, and guess what they call it today? Istanbul. They took over the cathedral that was in Constantinople, and now they've made it into a mosque. You might have seen this. It's a giant cathedral that they turned into a mosque, and now it has the minarets on the sides, uh, on, on the, all four corners. Huh? Yeah, that's right. So, that's what they did. They took them over. So what happened then to the Christians and all the people centered in that power area of that leg? Well, letter E. When Constantinople fell, the political rulers, the scribes and the scholars, fled northward into Russia and infiltrated the government there, setting up a Roman type of government imperialism right there in Russia. Interesting enough, Guess what they called their kings? The czars, which means Caesar. Isn't that funny? Wow. Okay, so the, that, that power has remained in Russia. So when you see Russia, or it turned into the Soviet Union, but now it's Russia and it's little states that are connected to it, exerting its power, that is Rome. The eastern leg. This is why Russia is a major player. This is why Gog and Magog is so important because we're talking about the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. The czars. And that connects some dots for you, doesn't it? After a while, uh, letter G, Russia gave herself the official title of the Third Roman Empire. Eventually, in letter H, the eastern balance of power was centered in the Soviet Union and included the communist bloc of nations. With the collapse of the European communism, the eastern balance shifted to Russia and the Commonwealth of Independent States. So right now, at this time, there are things that are still shifting with Islam becoming a major eastern power as well. Okay? So I want you to know, today, the leg is over there in Russia. Now where's the western leg? Okay? Letter K. The Western Division of Power remained in Rome from 364 to 476 when Rome fell. Okay, so go to the next page. The power then shifts to France, France, and centered in Charlemagne with Charlemagne in 80, and that all that that started in about 8800. Okay. Charlemagne called this domain the Holy Roman Empire of the Frankish nation. So that's where the power shifted to France. Then, in 962, Otto I of Germany defeated the Franks and set up the what's called the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. Guess what their leaders were called? Kaisers. What does Kaiser mean? Caesar. There is your western leg. Since then, especially after World War I, the Western balance of power has been centered in the democratic nations of the West. So then, in 364, the two-division states began and continues to this present day. That's right. You're on to something. You're on to it. You got it. 
We are the young lions of Tarsus. We are the births from Western Rome. We are the births. We were birthed from Western Europe, right? Most of our ancestors come from Spain. They come from Portugal. They come from England. They come from France. They come from Holland. The Americas started from Rome. I'm not talking Rome and Italy. I'm talking the Western power of the Roman Empire birthed us. It birthed Central America. It birthed Mexico. It birthed Canada. It birthed all of South America. Do you see where the balance of power shifted? It's right there with Western Europe and the Americas is the other leg. Young Lions of Tarsus is mentioned in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38. And the Young Lions of Tarsus and Sheba and Dedan, the Young Lions of Tarsus then, Tarsus was Spain. That's where Jonah fled from the Lord. He went, he was on a ship to head to Spain. Tarsus was that, 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 that area that controlled the incoming from the Atlantic into the Mediterranean. Very strategic part of the world. And all the trade came from there. So Tarsus though represents Western Europe. It was, it was not North Africa. It's not in Greece or anything like that. Tarsus is way out there in Western Europe and includes up in, into England as well. That whole area was considered that area. So, you can say that this balance of power went west. There's no doubt about it. And the balance of power is still, still in Europe, but it's not just simply in Europe. You can see where things shifted. So you have Russia and that Soviet Union block in the eastern area, and the other leg is over here and includes Europe and the Americas. Just from the power structure, just from whatever births came from that. You can throw in Australia. Australia came from England, the prisoner colony, and started this whole nation called Australia. But Australia is a birth from England. So young lines of Tarsus are those any nations that were birthed from Europe. Western Europe, not Eastern Europe, Western Europe. So that includes Spain. What did Spain do? Came to the Central America and the Mexico and all the, the South American countries. That is Western Rome. It's power. Now that balance of power might go back and shift to different locations, but that's where the other leg is. And it, currently we're in that leg. Okay. Now we move into number four the one world government state. So what we're looking for is these two legs to eventually coalesce and go into a one world government. So at letter B, and this is the, the, the variable, at some point, okay, we don't know when, the east-west balance of power will break down, leading to a one world government. Daniel 7.23 clearly states that at some point the fourth empire devours the whole earth. That's your key for world uh, world domination. This is something Rome never did, so it's, it's yet to happen prophecy-wise. The text demands that the Fourth Empire will at some time control the whole world and will devour it. A letter F, if literal interpretation is maintained, then the Fourth Empire of Imperialism is yet to control the whole world in the formation of a one-world government. 
which is something that has not yet been accomplished ever, ever. So no one can tell you that Daniel 7 has ever been accomplished fully, especially the one world government, because you want to ask them, well, then when did Rome control the world? I know what they're going to say. Well, they controlled the known world. Oh, no, no. No, no, Daniel's, Daniel's very specific, the entire planet. They will control the entire planet. So here's the conjecture. Here's what I want you to watch. This is why watching the news is important, why watching economies are important, why watching these countries are important. What did I tell you the nature of imperialism is? It's I put my own people in your country that don't are not natives, and I control you by that. I will also tax you from that entity, though you've never voted for me, and I want to destroy your country. You start adding those things up, you start seeing what's happening in the world. It makes perfect sense. Exactly what imperialism is is, is happening to America. The destruction of the economy, the destruction of the middle class, the destruction of, of borders. See, in one world government, you I want you to think about it. You cannot have borders. You cannot have individual nation states. So... I don't expect any politician, Republican or Democrat, to ever fight for borders anymore. And we have a wide open border to the south that's allowing terrorists to come through and eventually attack us. But they're never going to go to a border because to have a one world government, you have to have borderless. You have to lose national sovereignty. So now what you should start seeing is more and more the UN will put pressure on us to comply with them if we want to be a player in the world system. And no country will be able to be able, be able to not be a player. If you want to have economic ties and this and that. So guess what? They've got us. How do they have us? It's, it's happening. The imperialism is really hit here. It's really hit. If you go to Europe, the same thing is happening. I mean, they have their borders of what separates France and, and these other countries. But nonetheless, they all got on a common currency. And, and they're trying to get them to, to be united on a lot of different things. That's why they're having such a problem with Greece right now. Because they're saying, well, if we're one EU, we can't have nations getting out of control with their finances because, you know, Germany's saying, we don't want to help them because they made their own mess. They had people retiring at 50 and living till 80 and 90 years old on the government dime. We can't have that. And, and that was, it was a welfare state and it was all the jobs they allowed in that country were public jobs, no private jobs, and they destroyed their economy that way. It was just total socialism. And so the, the other European countries are saying, I don't know if we want them in us. In our, in our you, because they're a drain on us if they're going to keep their economy like this. So what it comes down to is, if you want to be part of the bigger picture, you've got to play by the rules, their economic rules, and that's what's going to happen to America. Uh, you're going to see the blending of this North American Union happen, and there's not going to be borders between us and Canada and Mexico, or even Central America, or whatnot, because that's not what the one world government wants. Can't happen. So, we're the biggest, baddest boys in town. You gotta take them out first. You gotta start with the United States. That's where it starts. 
You can you can mess around with these little loyal countries later. You've got to take down the big boys. To break the economy. To crash it, and then what will we... Well, then we, we, we go to our allies and say, what can you do for us? And they say, well, this is how you play the game. These are our rules now. And if you want to be a player and you want to survive, what's happening to Greece will happen to us. They get to set the rules for them. Okay, so, yeah, you don't want, you, you don't want anarchy. You don't want your people rioting in the streets because you guys collapse your own economy because you had so many unfunded liabilities. You have, you have pensions and stuff that you owe people and you can't pay them now. What do you think what happens when everybody that works for the state of California and the state says, I can't pay you now? What do you think they're going to do? They're going to have riots. They're going to have riots because people say, you owe me thousands of dollars of pension because I work for, you know, whether it's the state, city, federal, whatever. You owe us money. You're going to have people breaking down the federal, the doors down and rioting like they did in Greece. So to control that, they're going to say, whoa, time out, guys, we have a solution. Here's a solution. We're going to go into a different currency. We're going to hook up with these boys in Europe, and they're going to help us get through this. And don't worry, it's all there. You're going to get your stuff. It's all planned. And so the, the impetus to join up into a one-world government is always going to be economics and security. Always economics and security. Can't get past those two. So the intentional devaluing of the dollar is to get us to a one-world government. Hold on, let me get... Uh, hold on, Dave, let me get... Huh. Yeah. No, if you, you didn't have the taxation of small businesses here and the 6,000 most wealthiest people have moved out, you, you would have plenty. This, this, we could be our own nation here in California with the oil and the agriculture and the natural resources. This is the unbelievable place to live. But because we live in a liberal state, it's a Marxist state now. They've totally chokehold this. Uh, they've, Wow. Wow. <laughs> it is. Yep. And to, to form it. And, and so... It's an excellent point. And, and so what you're watching is people, I don't know if they're intentionally doing it. I think the bigwigs are doing it intentionally. They know what they're doing. They know that a guy like George Soros knows that a one world government is more beneficial for him to make more money. And these, 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 the international banking community, that's who these guys are. Those are the, the shadows in, in the, the, you know, the, the back rooms doing these things. Major, major money, international banking. And 
they know they can benefit better from a one world government. Yeah. And, and so what do, what do you do to individual nations? You put puppets in the place. And so you can control them. I mean, a guy like George Soros, he's bankrupt. What's, how many countries now? These smaller countries? Four or five of them on his own. That's one man having enough power to bankrupt countries. That's what kind of world we're living in. That's why it's inevitable. Well, there you go. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. It was a... Well, the Roman Catholic Church is in cahoots with a lot of things. Now, then this doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Interesting to tag on to that a little bit, because I, I don't discount that, because the Roman Catholic Church has got their hands in a lot of pies, man. Um we had a girl that took a, um, uh, you know, when you take a semester and you go to take an, uh, another class somewhere else, exchange type of thing, whatever. She took a, a class, international politics in Washington, D.C., and it was an international politics class with all these European kids. And she was like the only American in the class. Anyway, they're, they're studying international politics. Well, everyone down to the wire, all these European kids were like, we can't wait till the one world government comes. That's our hope for humanity. I mean, everyone, she said, she called me up from Washington and she said, everything you said in those classes, I'm seeing it with these kids talking like that. She goes, the whole generation, these are 20 year olds, you know, all saying the same thing. The savior of this world is a world government, one currency. And I'm thinking, wow, if that's already thinking like that, well, what are they thinking here in America? We're a little bit behind them, but I think that's that thought process is still happening now. Because if we have a, a collapse of the economy, um, we would have to go to something. They're not going to have anarchy ensue. And two, um, the, the the puppet masters from that are behind the scenes are what are they going to do? They can they can tell somebody, uh, any politician, you better do this or else you'll disappear. Or we can make you a millionaire overnight. You want to become a millionaire? Yeah, I'll take it. Just well, then do what we say. We'll make you a millionaire for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know, you just—that's what you do when you have that kind of power. So those are the particulars. But this is what God said would happen, and you know, you, what you have to have in a one-world government is a one-world currency. So that's what you're looking at as well: is how are the economies being affected? What's happening to the economies of the world? Everybody's in debt. Except these, these oil-rich nations that just produce oil. Everyone else is in debt. Well, you can't have countries continuing to get more and more in debt because they've got to have a solution. You have to, you have to finally either pay the piper or collapse. And no one's going to be allowed to collapse. They're going to say, this is too important for anyone to collapse. You ever heard that line before? These banks are too important. They're going to say that about nations. The Americas are too important to collapse. We have to do something. Well, here's the solution. One world government. And the two legs will stop, and all of a sudden, a one world government will ensue. And we'll be there. We could possibly see this. 
We could possibly see this because this is already in place way prior to the tribulation. Because there's another stage we have to go to before we get to the tribulation. And that's the next stage, the ten division stage. The ten division stage is clearly stated to come out of the world and world government. For some reason, and this is not given in the text, we don't know why, the one world government will divide into ten kingdoms that will cover the whole world, not merely Europe. So it starts out one world global and it breaks up very quickly into ten divisions controlling the planet. Careful reading of Daniel passages states that once the fourth empire rules the whole world, this, this, then this one world government will split into ten kingdoms. This requires the ten kingdoms to cover the entire world, not just the territory known as Europe. The world will be divided into ten administrative districts to avoid a world economic collapse. Yeah, they saw it was Europe. Yeah. And the, the key to that, Kenny, and, and this is what Frutenbaum is very good about, he, he leaves no stone unturned. The ten-stake division, I could see why they would say that, but they would have to ignore the preceding passage in Daniel chapter 7 where he says it will consume the whole, whole earth. And so what, what Daniel has now stated is very particular, very precise. It's a one-world government. And then that one world government breaks up into ten. So now, that's why you have to say the ten league confederation is worldwide rather than centered in Europe. So you might have, think about these regions. You, I want you to do this for me. I want you to Google ten league confederation on your Google and watch the pictures that pop up. They've already got it configured. Just put a 10-league confederation, Daniel 7 or something like that. It'll come up. Yeah, well, there you go. Because there, there's a lot of things that start collapsing because the Antichrist has to get control of the economy in the middle of the tribulation. So there's, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So when you Google that, what you're going to see is already maps made out of the world having these ten divisions. European division, North American division, South American division, African division, Asian division. It's all broken up. Already. It's like someone already knows. So with that being said, we could possibly see that. Still, we could still be around for that. Now that gets pretty, pretty tricky there if we get to see that. Because, yeah, I, I, all, this is all pre-tribulational events. This is not something that happens during the tribulation. It happens prior to it. The one world government doesn't even exist into the tribulation. It's a ten-league confederation that, that exists in the tribulation. So, with that being said, that's a lot going on there, man, and that we could possibly see. And what you'll start seeing is the reasons for this. You know the destination, but you, you should start seeing the reasons for this. Then we move into the Antichrist stage. Number six. It is during the Ten Kingdom stage that the Antichrist will begin his rise to power. Now, this might happen prior to the tribulation, and we might still be here. We won't be able to identify him, 
but he will be on the scene somewhere rising. Okay? He might even be alive today. If, the, if we're in the last days and, and prior to the tribulation, he could be alive to this very day. We don't know. Eventually, he will be strong enough to uproot three of the ten kings and then the other seven will simply submit to his authority. Once the other seven submit to their authority, to the Antichrist, this will begin the fifth and final stage of the fourth Gentile empire called the Antichrist stage, which is the stage of absolute imperialism. What do I mean by that? He controls everything. One man controlling the buying and selling the economies of every part of this globe. It is a counterfeit to the messianic kingdom. It is a counterfeit to what Christ will do. It is a counterfeit um, where he sits on the throne, so to speak, in, in, in Babylon and pretends to be the false messiah. Or pretends to be the messiah. He is the false messiah. Yes. For that one. Because see, once you, once you enter into the tribulation, it's already in this stage and he's uprooting these three guys. This is where the world wars are coming from. So you, most people, when they start thinking about the Antichrist, they think, wow, this guy's going to be charismatic and he will be. But there's people that oppose him. And obviously, with three other kings, he has to uproot them. He goes to war with them because they oppose him. And I don't know what these districts are, but they lose, and he wins. And the other seven districts submit to him because they see that he's uprooted three. So he has a military backing, he has military power, he has finances, he has money, and he destroys them. And therefore, they give their power to him, and he starts controlling that last phase of the Antichrist um, government. Go to the next page real quick. <clears throat> there is your layout now on letter E. I'm not going to go through all of that. There's, there's a, a bird's eye view of the different stages now. You have a full orb perspective. Now, I want you to jump to Revelation 13 and look at the Antichrist stage. And John's the one who really starts breaking this out. He's going to add another element to it, though, that Daniel didn't, but now he's going to. Revelation 13, 1 through, 10, uh, 1 through 10. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Seas always represent Gentiles. Gentiles. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. He, uh, John expects you to know what the language of beast means. It refers to Daniel's beast, the fourth empire. Up out of the sea, which is Gentile. Anything out of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is Gentile. Here's the new element. The new element he now introduced, having seven heads. That's the new element. And he's going to explain this in another passage. But he's introduced a new element that no one's ever talked about before. Wait a second, so what are you saying? John is saying that this empire also has seven heads. Heads and ten horns. Now we talked about the horns. We know what the horns are. The horns are the ten districts, the ten league confederation, 
But yet he says it adds, has something else that you're not aware of. It has seven heads too. Huh. From the beast, okay? So again, it's centered in imperialism. It's not outside of imperialism. It's from this empire. And on his, on his horns, ten crowns. Those are the kings that control these areas. And on his heads, on, on his heads are uh, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth uh, like the mouth of a lion. Now that should be a clue right there. That's called a remez. That's a reminder. He has reminded you of something what Daniel said. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7 said this, that when these empires finish, they still will continue for a while. The idea is they will continue their influence into the fourth empire. So what he is saying is that this fourth empire has remnants of influence from Babylon, has influences from Medo-Persia, and influences from Greece. Today, as you look at the two legs in, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe and the United States, you should still see the influences of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece with us today and will continue on into the tribulation. That's what he's saying. The influences are all there. It's made up of all these other parts. And it's not like a lion. The dragon gave him specifically. Him is the little horn. Him is the Antichrist. His power, his throne, and great authority. Absolutely. This is the beginning of the satanic trinity. Satan is playing the father. The father gave his throne to who? Jesus. He says, he, Jesus told us in a promise, you will sit on my throne, he promises all believers, as I sit on my father's throne, which was given to me. Jesus sits on his father's throne. But isn't it interesting, in the counterfeit trinity, Satan allows the Antichrist to sit on Satan's throne. And have his power and have his authority. That power is interesting. We'll talk about that in just a bit. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so they worshiped the dragon. They worshiped Satan who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? who was able to make war with him. What did that just tell you? This individual man who has power from Satan, the Antichrist, the little horn that now uproots three and is in control of things, he appears as if he has died. He was slain. And how was he slain? He was slain in the war with uprooting the three other horns. He was killed. Now, here's where the debate is. And I don't know, I think I lean towards one thing, but the debate among prophecy scholars is this. Is this a genuine resurrection from the dead, or does it appear as if it's a genuine resurrection? I don't know. There's guys on both sides. That term, it seems to, in English, seems to say... Um, as if it had been mortally wounded. You see that phrase? As if it had been... It, it seems to suggest that, well, it's maybe not. 
right? But here's where the other scholars disagree and say, wait, that same phrase is used for Jesus. Let me read this in Revelation chapter 5. That same phrase is used for the Lord. Um, I looked and behold, this is Revelation 5 verses 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Same phrase. As though it had been slain. Now, the, the, the scholars that agree that this is a real resurrection say the same terminology is being used for Jesus as is being used for Antichrist. That's what they think supports, or what they say, one of the reasons they support a real resurrection from the dead. Because that same, we obviously know Jesus died. And that same terminology is used for him, as if he had died. But we know he died. So they say, why would you think anything otherwise? If you use basic hermeneutics and apply the, how you interpret that one way, but not interpret it in another way, you're violating hermeneutics. So in order to be consistent in your hermeneutics, if you interpret Jesus was dead, you have to interpret that G, uh, the Antichrist died and resurrected. Yeah. So he'll he'll have a counterfeit virgin birth. A counterfeit when I say counterfeit, not not a not a fake, but it's real. It, it, something happened. I mean when his when his mama births the Antichrist, she's virgin born in the sense that she didn't have an earthly husband. It was Satan who sired him. Then you get into the counterfeit resurrection here. And again, like I say, wherever you line up, that's on you. But we're going to talk a little bit more about this. We've got to use Second Thessalonians chapter 2 to bring this into the mix. It is very possible that God allows Satan the power to do this for this one time because it's attached to something else. And if I read Second Thessalonians, it'll make a little bit more sense to you. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about Satan, or sorry, the Antichrist, and it connects this event with what happens that Paul lines up. And this is in chronological order. And he goes, uh, verse, let's see, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away out of the way. It's the Holy Spirit taking the church out in rapture. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with what? Power, signs, and lying wonders, and all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now here's the key phrase. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. Now, this is not an event that occurs after the rapture. The timing of it is when Antichrist declares himself to be God. Because he says this. He says in verse 4, "...who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he sits..." as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. When does that happen? Three and a half year mark of the tribulation. 
The strong delusion then is sent at the three and a half year mark that everybody who resisted the truth for the first three and a half years of the tribulation shall now believe the lie. And what is the lie he just told you in Second Thessalonians? What does he declare himself? God. He declares himself to be God because of why? They're the event of a counterfeit resurrection. And because he was resurrected by Satan, he now proclaims himself to be God, and all the world says, yes, this guy is God, and who can make war with him? And they start worshiping. And that's at the point he starts demanding worship at that point in time. But at the same time, God is saying, at the same time, I'm sending a strong delusion, so they will believe the lie. So, in concert with all of this, you have to wrap yourself into 2 Thessalonians and chapter 13 and marry those two together, and, and that will give you the idea of where you should go with this resurrection, whether it's a false resurrection or he really did come back from the dead. And, and again, scholars are divided on that. Fruthenbaum, the guy you're reading, says he's the real resurrection. Mark Hitchcock believes it's a, a real resurrection. But there's other guys who say, no, it's not. It's a feigned resurrection. Uh, it's a counterfeit. But here's the deal. I don't care what side you come up with on that. That's, that's up to you on your hermeneutics, and, and you can apply both. There's good guys on both sides. But the effect is still the same. They will think he resurrected from the dead. Whether he did it really or he didn't, the idea is they will all think it. And believe it. And the strong delusion makes them believe it. So regardless of whatever position you have, the effect is still the same. And at that point, the strong delusion says this. If you waste your time and, and dilly-dally around the first three and a half years of the tribulation when the, the 144,000 are running loose and witnessing and you have the two witnesses and you have miraculous things going on and you deny the truth at that point in time, at that point, at the midpoint of tribulation, you will not get a second chance. You will believe the lie, you will take the mark, and you're condemned to hell at that point in time, even though you're alive. I know a lot of people say, well, after the rapture, you won't get a second chance. No, no, no. It's after the midpoint you don't get a second chance. you got to make your mind up at the midpoint of what you're going to do with the Lord. Now, here's the deal. We're gone. We're not even there. But a lot of people are worried about their family being left behind, and you're thinking, what will happen to my, you know, my, my, my relatives? Well, they'll still get a chance. Till the midpoint. And they got to make that mind up. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.